Hello and welcome to Afroqueer. I'm your host, Sally Chum. The last time we spoke to you, we were in our studio getting ready for the second half of season two. Back when we could safely go outside, see our friends and family, it was a world away. But like a lot of you, our lives have changed because of COVID-19. I'm speaking to you from my home. We've closed our studios and the whole team is working remotely. We don't know when we'll be together again. And while all of this was happening, we kept hearing from you, our listeners. I'm quarantining from Matasia, Kigali, Kampala, Uganda. I'm quarantining with my parents. My parents are okay with my queerness, but I, I am safe, yes. Since I'm an extrovert, I am figuring out dating and love in the period of prolonged quarantine. LGBT refugees, they don't have anywhere to go. So self-isolating is becoming um, a problem. For me personally, I, I want to see a different world. The world in which we used to live was just not sustainable. So we need a different kind of world. In this episode, you'll hear from some people who have been in previous Afroqueer episodes, as well as some new voices from around the African continent and the diaspora. We wanted to ask, how are you doing? Today I'm joined by phone by Afroqueer producer Ida Halinambi. She has our first story. Hey Ida. Hi Sally. So one place I really wanted to check in on for this episode is Uganda. In the beginning, it was like coronavirus, which was something we used to hear about. It's in China, the internet has gone, to, gone off to Europe and we're like, oh, Uganda is it's safe. This is Adrian Juko. He is a lawyer and executive director of Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum. They provide legal aid services to LGBTI people and other marginalized groups in Uganda. So around March, that's when Uganda woke up to the reality that coronavirus may get here. And the president of Uganda, in his usual style, announced lots of measures to try and stop the virus. The government has closed all schools and universities, all churches, mosques, places of worship. Gatherings of more than five people have been prohibited. Airports are closed and borders are only open to cargo. Public transportation and personal cars have been banned. Uganda has had one of the strictest lockdowns in East Africa. The police and army began enforcing these rules brutally. And right away, Adrian began getting calls. People are being arrested. You have to be there for them. People are being detained at police stations. You have to go and respond to the arrest. The reality is, for many Ugandans, they can't stay home. They can't shelter in place. When they say keep home, what does keep home for you mean when you stay in a slum area or when you stay in a shelter for LGBTIP? On March 29, 2020, following a tip-off from the local community, the Uganda police raided Children of the Sun Foundation, an LGBT homeless shelter. So they brought them in, into the compound and a mob, there was a mob outside. The whole community was there, police, army and the community. And then the mayor started talking to them and telling them, "You are gay. why are you gay? Why have you been doing this? You don't want this kind of behavior here. And then the mayor started beating people, beating them, beating some of the people who were arrested. Ah! 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 
we are usually the first responders whenever there is an arrest of LGBTI people. And so even on this same day, we are called by the executive director of Children of the Sun Foundation, who told us that the shelter that he runs had been raided by the police. So when we got there, that they had been arrested and taken away from the premises. We found the premises being guarded by police officers. The soldier was like, I'm under instructions to arrest anyone who comes here. So since you've come here looking for these people, you are also under arrest. The soldiers confiscated the lawyers' phones and took them to the station. The lawyers were released shortly after and immediately began advocating for their clients. At first, the police wanted to charge the members of the shelter with the offense of carnal knowledge against the order of nature, which is the archaic language the courts use for anal sex. But they needed proof. In Uganda, it's not illegal to be gay, but it is illegal to have gay sex. And this is what the police used to intimidate the queer community. They wanted to go and search the, the shelter. So we went with them to do the search. And mostly what they found at the shelter were condoms. And in Uganda, condoms seem to be evidence of homosexuality. <laughs> and then they found the ART treatment, antiretroviral drugs treatment. And then they found PrEP. Lucky enough, this time around, they didn't subject them to an examinations. But then the police spokesperson came in with a, a TV crew. And so their faces were shown to the media and shown as homosexuals. Members of the queer community in Uganda are often arrested and harassed by police and charged with sodomy. But the charge of sodomy is very difficult to prove and rarely sticks in the Ugandan courts. But this time, the police had a new weapon. Then eventually they were charged with uh, the offense of being a negligent act likely to cause an infectious disease. The police charged them with violating the new government social distancing regulations around COVID-19. This is a gray area because what are they being charged with? Being too many people living in one house? But this is a shelter. Where did the Ugandan government expect people who are living in shelters to go? These are people that cannot go stay with relatives. They are people that cannot go and stay in a school setting. They are people that they are people who cannot go and stay with friends because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. And many of these are actually transgender people. Many of these are people who have been subjected to mob justice in their own communities, and they have had to run away to find a place where to stay. These are the people that are staying in these shelters. Some of them have had their colleagues murdered in the recent murders that we had. So these are people that are needy and poor, and many of them are actually HIV positive, so they also come for treatment. Adrian says these arrests are part of a pattern. Well, before COVID-19, we had uh, the case of the 16, and uh, people were arrested and then subjected to annual examinations. And also, uh, towards the end of last year, there was a raid on um, Ramba, which is a gay-friendly bar, and more than 125 people were arrested. Many of them were LGBT. So it seems to be a trend, starting from last year, that is continuing up to now, from the middle of last year, there was a targeted attack against LGBTI persons, especially those who stay in shelters. So for me, COVID-19 is just a convenient excuse. This is just a continuation of a campaign of persecuting LGBTI people. Even as governments like Uganda's crack down on the civil liberties of LGBT people during this pandemic, human rights defenders like Adrian continue to fight for justice. So for me, people should speak out and engage and demand not just for LGBTI people, but every single person, 
because this affects every person, more especially the marginalized, yes. But every person gets affected. So we can all speak out with one voice against the excesses of the government, even in light of the measures to prevent COVID-19. After six weeks of trying, Adrian has finally been granted permission by the courts to see his clients. As he prepares their defense, they remain in jail. We'll be following this story and keep you updated as things develop. COVID-19 to date has infected over 4 million people, and more than 280,000 have lost their lives. Unemployment is rising around the world as economies have slowed down, and as Adrian described, the pandemic is making vulnerable communities even more vulnerable. As we record this episode, we have over 60,000 reported cases throughout the African continent, with just over 2,000 deaths. These reported numbers pale to the numbers we're seeing in Europe. In Italy alone, there are over 200,000 cases. These high numbers of infections have forced many European countries into lockdowns that have lasted months. One European country that has been adamant about staying open is Sweden. And many people have been asking, at what cost? In the past, Sweden was known to have a welcoming policy to immigrants and refugees and has resettled many people from Africa and the Middle East. Of the population of 10 million, 25% or 2.6 million people are of recent non-Swedish descent. The country has also been celebrated for accepting a high number of LGBT refugees and asylum seekers. One of those asylum seekers is Juliette Muhande, a Zambian LGBT activist. We called her at home in Stockholm to see how she was doing. I don't know if the right thing to say these days, but I'm doing great. Juliet claimed asylum in Sweden in 2014 and now spends her time between Johannesburg, where she is the executive director of Amsher, a pan-African LGBT organization, and Stockholm, where she's raising her daughter. So you, you said that you had just gotten back to Stockholm six weeks ago. When I landed here, I found that um, people were re- relatively leaving their lives, but they were being very careful. I've seen a lot of media articles out there saying Sweden is open and people are just living their life. That's not true. The country was much slower than it would have had. Whereas I'd left uh, South Africa, like people were panicking to go and buy food to make sure that they're stocking up for their kids. So that was a huge contrast to start with already. Since the COVID-19 pandemic started, Sweden has trusted their citizens to follow social distancing rules. The government encouraged working from home but did not close public transportation and allowed for bars, primary schools, and gyms to remain open. Many have said that Sweden is using the approach of herd immunity to slow the spread of the disease. What that means is that they're counting on a large part of the population eventually becoming infected and then developing an immunity. That also means that Sweden, unlike its neighbors, has begun to prioritize testing only high-risk groups, the elderly, people who work with the elderly, and those with immune deficiencies. While Sweden doesn't have to worry about reopening its economy, this approach is not without challenges. You see, even countries like Sweden and Scandinavia that are considered the, having the best models have actually failed when it comes to uh, coming up with actual policies that are able to work for, um, for, for migrant populations. 
In the beginning of the pandemic, immigrant populations in Sweden were hit the hardest. According to a report published in April by Sweden's public health agency, a disproportionate number of immigrants, in particular from Somalia, Iraq, and Syria, were being hospitalized for COVID-19. So you find our migrant populations are the ones driving your taxis. So when you arrive at the airport, that's your first line of contact. So of course, the COVID-19 would have been, you know, those are the first people on the front lines. You work in in the home for the elderly, and then you have your six kids, or maybe you have a relative, an older relative that you're living with. So if any one of you get um, the COVID-19, the chances of you passing it on to the rest of your family is very high because you don't even have the luxury of isolating, self-isolating if you get any symptoms. How do you self-isolate in a one-bedroom apartment? And so migrants are bearing the brunt of the COVID crisis, and so are um, elderly people in Sweden. As the pandemic spread through Sweden, many community leaders commented that the warnings and government announcements were not circulated in languages other than Swedish. Instead, immigrant communities were scapegoated as harbingers of the disease. Are people actually also talking about the migrant populations that are the next population that have been decimated by COVID? This is Sally, I think at the beginning of this epidemic, that was actually in the news because I think at some point those were the highest numbers of people who were dying. But you know when, you, when you're a migrant and you're talking about ethnicity and uh, often color in, in, in countries that are mostly majority white, you find that speaking about those kind of issues actually opens another kind of worm, which would be discrimination, right? And, and, and on the basis that you may have coronavirus. Like many refugees, Juliet feels torn. She's grateful to be in Sweden, but she's critical about how the country has dealt with the impact of the pandemic on the immigrant community. At the same time, she's terrified for and feels far from her family and friends at home. So I feel great that I can go outside and walk and I can run, I can do, I I don't do things as usual. Nobody's doing things as usual. But I also feel like I'm really worried um, about my family in Zambia, my friends in most African countries. When you have family and friends in different countries and borders are closed, the pandemic can isolate you from your community and loved ones. I'm currently in Kenya where commercial flights have stopped and there is no movement allowed in or out of Nairobi. But most of my family is in the United States and in Senegal. Because of this, I wanted to look into how coronavirus was hitting West Africa. So we called in our new team member. Bonjour, Amélie. Bonjour, Célie. Amélie is both Congolese and French. She's our new associate producer, and she investigated the COVID situation in Francophone West Africa. Yeah, right now I'm in France and I'm seeing our health systems becoming overwhelmed. So I was very, very worried about the countries with even more fragile systems. And I contacted the founding member of Emael Info, an LBTQ organization working in West Africa. Emma is from Côte d'Ivoire, but she lives in Burkina Faso. Ten years ago, Burkina was regarded as one of the friendliest and safest countries in West Africa. 
However, nowadays, near daily attacks by jihadist groups and local militias have made almost 800,000 people to flee their homes in the past 12 months. It also caused the closure of 135 health centers around the country. I finally reached him after many attempts. Salut, Amélie. At first, Emma reassured me. She explained to me there were measures quickly taken by the government. Many government ministers caught COVID-19 early on in the country's outbreak. Usually, Burkinabes have to pay for water, but since access to water is a major issue in the fight against COVID, now the state takes care of the water bills and water is provided for free in different places around the country. They started a curfew at 7 p.m. in the first week. Now it's 9 p.m., but Emma was still worried. Emma says that lots of queer people work in the informal sector, and that sector has been really affected by the pandemic. Many had to go back and live with family again because they had no option. It was the only way to be able to survive and not starve. And to Emma, it was a terrible choice, as many of them have homophobic parents and complex relationships with their families. I asked what COVID-19 meant for work as an activist. She continues to work because she wants to help her community, she wants to serve. It also helps her manage her anxiety. And guess what? She's launching her own podcast about COVID in West Africa. For all our French-speaking listeners, visit Email Info Socials to hear more stories like this one. Thanks, Amelie. You're welcome. So there's one more person, or two people rather, who I really wanted to catch up with. Our regular listeners will remember David and Eric, two of our stars from season one. David is originally from Nigeria, but he lives in Boston now with his husband, Eric. They featured in our episode, The Gay Wedding That Broke the Nigerian Internet. Okay, good. Do you want to sit on that side? Okay. You both look really nice. David and Eric live in a suburb of Massachusetts where COVID-19 has hit really hard. So in our, in our suburb of Boston, Revere, do you know how many other cases are up to today? Mm-hmm. So I try not to read it. I think we're, we're over, um, like, I think we're over a thousand confirmed cases um, and we're, we're almost to a hundred deaths. Wow. So. You have to wear masks as you go in and out of your building or your property. All the public schools are closed um, for the rest of the school year. So we're doing, I don't know if you know about a lot about the gig economy, but we're doing a little bit of everything. Both David and Eric juggle a bunch of jobs. Eric is a fundraiser for a local university and also sells meal kits. David's driving a Lyft. Lyft is an app like Uber. And they also work as real estate agents. I also do um, delivery services, so that gives me opportunity to, like, you know, go out and make the money. I guess um, for you, David, people coming in and out of your car, um, mm-hmm. do you feel, how afraid do you feel about um, the the disease? 
Well, I will tell you, I am really, really scared. Um, but it is what it is. Um, I have to fend for myself and my family. I do, I do my best. So what I do is I'm always with my mask and my gloves on. I would um, encourage my riders to come in with their gloves on too. Whoever do not have a gloves on, I offer to give them sanitizer. Um, after the drop off, after a few drop off and pick up, I do sanitize my car. I clean the 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 doors and I make sure everything looks really good and I do my best. In the U.S., many frontline workers are immigrants and people of color, like David. Doctors, nurses, delivery drivers, taxi drivers, supermarket workers people who work in aged care. They are at the forefront of the response and at a higher risk than people who can afford to work from home. Basically, I'm actually transporting essential workers. So I'm doing my best to keep the economy running, which I'm very proud of as an immigrant, you know. (laughs) We have to do our best to keep the economy running because I just cannot see myself staying home and I'm not able to do anything. It's just my little way of helping and making sure that um, everyone gets to their destination safe and fine. When we featured David and Eric's story, they were newlyweds. But something we've been hearing from a lot of you guys is that lockdown can challenge even the most solid relationships. I asked David and Eric if they would be comfortable sharing how it's been for them. How is married life under Oh my god. Lockdown? We want to kill each other constantly. We mm-hmm. are fighting nonstop. Yes. Luckily we live right on the beach now, so we're about a quarter, well, eighth of a mile from the beach and our, we have a little Maltese and so we'll take him for a walk on the beach or one of us, not both of us, when we need a break. <laughs> And we're fighting over who zooms in the living room and who zooms in the bedroom because we have a tiny apartment. Um, we're fighting over <laughs> how spicy the dinner is. Um, and if I make something that he doesn't want, he decides he's going to make his own, you know, pepper soup. And I'm like, no, we've, we're having roast chicken, but um, we're still together. <laughs> it's an opportunity for us to sit back together and figure out what's working and what's not working plan our lives as a, uh, as a family and plan the future. That's how I say it. I don't know how he says it. I just want to survive right. right now. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm thinking about surviving now. And this is one of the arguments that we have. I mm-hmm. just want to get through now. So, yeah. Yep. Thanks for sharing that. That can't <laughs> have been comfy. <laughs> um, is there anything um, that you'd like to say to our listeners? For me, I would say people would um, should stay home, stay safe, and um, do what they have to do to stay safe. For me, I would say keep doing those things you're doing, those, those things you've always dreamt of. Dust those things and think of how you could reinvent them and just make things work again. So I guess my, my advice would be, you know, stay strong, stay safe, do the best you can to social distance and take care of your needs alone instead of with other people that might put you in contact with COVID-19. It's a serious thing that's killing people every day. It's killing people on our, right down the street from us. Do the best you can to, to stay home and stay safe is what I would say. 
And don't let the fights break up your marriages yet. Wait until right. it's over. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who talked to us for this episode and spoke to us about how the pandemic is impacting them and their communities. Thank you for sharing your story. Special thanks to Suzanne Bergson from Human Rights Watch, Ricky Seppo Cositao from Accountability International, Faith Montana from Q Initiative, and Gibson Wamalawa Bashir. Our amazing team is currently working on season three, and you'll get to hear that in June. In the meantime, we are very active on social media. And we wanted to invite all our listeners to join us on May 17th, which is the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia. We will be throwing an amazing online festival with a lineup of your favorite artists. Follow us on Instagram for all the details. This episode was produced by me, Sally Chum, Ida Halinambi, and Mae Francis. Amelie Bertile-Yango is our associate producer. Rachel Wamoto runs our social media. And Tevin Sudi is our sound editor. This episode was supported by Google, PRX, the Dune Foundation, and the Ford Foundation. Our theme song is Power by Maya and the Big Sky. You can find us on Instagram at Afroqueer Podcast, Twitter at Afroqueer Pod, or visit our website at www.afroqueerpodcast.com. I'm Sally Chum. Thanks for listening.